Thank you, Blake. Thank you, Grace Church, the Valley. What a great joy it is to always be here. Anytime we're able to be here, it's a joy to visit and an extra special privilege to be able to open the Word of God to you as a faithful and encouraging church. I hope you know that your reputation, uh, like those churches in the New Testament, your reputation goes far beyond just Kingsburg or the Central Valley. People are encouraged by Grace Church of the Valley, and they're encouraged by the way that you love the Word of God, and I'm encouraged by the way you love your pastors. That's a blessing to someone like me, and so thank you for all that you are, and thank you for praying for us. Uh, We have been in Santa Barbara now for about three and a half years attempting a church revitalization uh, for a wonderful historic church there in near downtown Santa Barbara, and it has been a challenge. We didn't anticipate covid and a lot of other things when we moved there, but God has done good things, and we'd appreciate it as you think of us or as you think of the beautiful coast, if you would continue to pray that his kindness would be upon us. Could we go to him in prayer just once more to clarify our hearts and open our minds to what he has for us? Father, as Blake has acknowledged, there's no wisdom that I have that makes this time worthwhile. But I thank you that this is a church which loves your word and is eager to hear it and not just hear it, but to apply it. Our goal tonight is not that we'd be merely informed, but that we would be transformed by the working of your Holy Spirit. And so while we have no way of knowing the hearts that are in this room, the challenges, the difficulties, perhaps the successes and the joys. Lord, we know that every single person here is a person in need of your continued work through the Holy Spirit. There may be some here who have never in any kind of real way experienced this new life that we've already heard about this evening from Terrence's testimony and the new life that we've sung about. They don't know any kind of blessed assurance. They are uncertain about the holiness of God because they would have to recognize their own sin. They can't say it's so sweet to trust in Jesus because they don't. Father, we pray in a special way that you would open their hearts this evening. And all these things, may you be shown glorious. May we be little or nothing And when this happens, we know it is for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Were you to grow up in the small South Italian town of Brindisi, you likely would have gone to the movie theater most weeks in your life. And so perhaps you would have been surprised over the last couple of years, had that been your story, when crews found underneath that movie theater, the historic movie theater in the center of town, an unexploded bomb from World War II, a British ordinance that had sat for over 75 years, still armed, still dangerous, and yet unexploded, 88 pounds of dynamite underneath your feet all of your life. It was one of 60,000 such finds in the nation of Italy every year, Long after the war is over, there is unknown, unrecognized, 
unexpected danger lurking everywhere. Isn't that kind of like life? We look at the news reports and we try to imagine what it would be like to live in Ukraine and to experience literally on our doorstep the threat of war and bloodshed and bombs. We can't imagine going to a 4th of July parade and having gunfire break out from some madman. We are terrified when we hear the stories of elementary schools all over the country. We have to recognize that there are perhaps even in our own bodies rogue cancer cells waiting to let loose and wreak havoc on our comfortable lives. If we're honest, we would all have to acknowledge that danger is all around us. And in a unique way, there are dangers for those of us who follow Jesus. We would call them spiritual dangers. Jesus spoke of these very real dangers, and he taught us about his care for us despite the presence of those dangers. And when he wanted to teach his followers about the very real danger that's part of life and the fact that nevertheless he is one who cares and guides and protects, he used a metaphor that was very familiar in his milieu, very familiar in the context in which Jesus walked the earth. In ancient Palestine, even today, sheep herding was a very common practice. Everyone knew about shepherds. Everyone knew about sheep. Even those that weren't engaged in caring for flocks, the sheep, the lambs, it was everywhere. That was often the meat that they would eat. It provided clothing. It was a, an economic reality. And sheep tending, sheep herding was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. And Jesus leverages this familiarity in the book of John to highlight the serious issues that we have to recognize are part of our lives. In fact, according to Jesus, these are issues of life and death. He addresses questions like, who is he and why it matters? And he addresses issues like who we are and perhaps most important, whose we are, to whom do we belong? The more we know these truths, the more we understand Jesus' I am statement in the 10th chapter of John where he says that he is the door and he is the good shepherd, the more we understand this, the more we'll understand that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are right where you need to be. Where else would you want to be? It's important to understand. And despite danger, We can profess and we can believe that someone cares for us and someone provides for us and someone is guiding us and someone has a purpose for our lives. In fact, not despite the danger, but perhaps in light of spiritual danger, it's important for us to understand that. So open your Bibles with me, please, to the 10th chapter of John. And after you have spent time so far this summer looking at the fact that Jesus is the bread of life, and Jesus is the light of the world. This evening, we look at Jesus' claim that he is the door, and then immediately, he says he is the good shepherd in John chapter 10. So we'll consider this evening the shepherd and his sheep and the danger that we find very real. Beginning in chapter 10, look at verse 1 by way of introduction. Our text really won't even begin until we get down to verse 9, but let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 10. As Jesus acknowledges that he is the door, he is the good shepherd. 
And so follow along as I read, and let me remind you as I do every time I have the privilege of preaching, this is God's word for us this evening. John 10, beginning in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper or the porter opens. The the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers." And then John makes a comment, verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, John chapter 10 follows John chapter 9. I'm always surprised I don't see people write that down when I say those kinds of profound insights. But John 10 follows John 9. And if you know the story of John 9, you know that it's the story of the one we call the man born blind. If you don't know that story, I want to encourage you to read it later this evening. Don't let the rest of the week go out without reading chapter 9 of John, because it's one of the most astonishing stories in the Bible. It's a story that has humor. It has a level of sarcasm, so people like me love it. It has a level of tragedy in it. It has a level of surprise. Here's a man who has been blind all of his life, And Jesus miraculously heals him on the Sabbath. And instead of there being a celebration that one of God's children is healed from blindness, there is an immediate interrogation that begins. He is really, in a sense, put on trial, this man born blind, who can now see because someone gave him his sight on the Sabbath day. And of course, you understand, we all know this was a plot against Jesus. But if you read the story, it's really astonishing. There's one place where they bring in the guy's parents and they begin to interrogate his parents. And it's tragic because his parents who have seen him blind all of, their li- all of his life, his parents, they basically say, not our problem. He's an adult, talk to him. And essentially, and here's the point, essentially he's cast out of the fellowship of God's people. He's excluded because he won't agree with them in lining up against the very rabbi who gave him his sight. That was the level of leadership. That was the level of shepherding that God's people Israel had at the time that Jesus walked the earth. And in response to that kind of shepherding, in response to that kind of pastoral care, if we could use that phrase, Jesus gives us an exhortation and an explanation. Indeed, he speaks in parables and metaphors in John chapter 10, saying that unlike those shepherds, he is the good shepherd. That's what we find in John 10. Just like much of the Old Testament, too often God's flock had false shepherds who abused the sheep instead of caring for their sheep. And so this is an example of what had happened in chapter 9 with the man born blind. It's an example of what happens when leaders are not genuinely shepherds, but rather when leaders are wolves. And basically, Jesus says, that's them, but this is me. It's a contrast. You've seen what they did to this man born blind who now has his sight. 
You've seen the way religious leaders cared for him. Now let me show you what you can count on from me. And that's what we find. Pick it up in verse 7. It says, so Jesus said to them, because there's this acknowledgement that it's all just gone right over their heads. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And here, clearly, what Jesus is saying is that he is the way. He is the means of access. But he implies more than that. And nearly everyone in this room has heard this truth. But in reality, especially in ancient Palestine, often sheepfolds or sheep pens would be a circle or would be a square and have only one opening, but there would be no gate. They, They wouldn't take the time to construct a gate. And over the centuries... Travelers have asked shepherds. They've seen these sheepfolds, and there are countless stories of this where travelers in the the Middle East have asked shepherds, you know, I see your sheep, and I see that you're a shepherd, and I see the sheep pen, but there doesn't seem to be a gate. And over and over again over the centuries, not quoting John 10, but just talking about their experience, over and over again, shepherds have replied, and they have said, I am the gate. I am the door. And when I lay down at the evening, when all of the sheep are safe in the pen, none of those sheep escape into danger, and no cause of danger comes into the pen because I serve as the door. This text, Jesus says, I am the door, I am the shepherd, because the shepherd is the door. The door is the shepherd. Pick it up in verse 8. Jesus says, all who came before me are thieves, In other words, go back and read chapter 9, as it were. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep, in other words, those who are genuine sheep, did not listen to them. Now, what Jesus is getting at is the tragedy of spiritual danger and the safety that's found only in him. Because he refers here to thieves and robbers And in the metaphor, in the parable, these are enemies. There is danger here. But we need to recognize that the Bible speaks drastically about the kind of dangers that you and I face as the sheep in Jesus' fold. The sheep that are cared for by this good shepherd, Jesus. There are dangers to us. And the metaphors that Scripture uses consistently, the pictures that Scripture uses, are all of beasts and animals and car, uh, uh, the, the kinds of animals that will cause bloodshed and are eager to devour us. Let me give you some examples. If we start at the end and we go to the book of Revelation, you may remember Revelation chapter 9, 12, verse 9, where John sees a vision and says the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. You don't have to worry about whether a dragon is a real thing. That's not the point of the vision in Revelation. The vision in Revelation is making the point there's this very real danger and if you want to put a picture to it, if you want to put a model to it, if you want to try to understand it, think of a dragon. You have the same kind of terminology in Revelation in chapter 13, when the two beasts that follow the dragon show up. In verse 1 of chapter 13, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. 
Chapter 13, verse 11. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. There is danger here. And the danger is so real that when Scripture wants to alert us to the danger, it uses graphic pictures and metaphors to awaken us to the danger. You all are familiar with 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know that in chapter 20 of Acts, when Paul was speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, he said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In Matthew 10, verse 16, Jesus said, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And under the old covenant in the Old Testament, Ezekiel rebukes the shepherds of Israel in chapter 34, and he says, No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. In other words, the shepherds were behaving like wolves, that they might not be food for them. And really, this imagery goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? Remember Genesis 3? Now the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Dragons and beasts and lions and wolves and serpents, there is danger out there. In a very real sense, we live life surrounded by spiritual enemies We live life in danger, spiritually. Historically, the church has acknowledged our primary enemies as the world, this world system that is anti-Christ and anti-God. Also, the flesh, our sinfulness that still abides even though we are redeemed. And then the devil and all of his minions and all of his powers. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are our primary enemies and they are out to destroy us. And if we take that lightly, if we do not recognize the seriousness of it, we can be devastated in surprise and we will miss the glorious truth that the God of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ is willing to serve as our good shepherd. Genuine spiritual danger exists, but we have a shepherd. Now, what does it mean to say that Jesus is our shepherd? What does that look like in real life? Well, let's look again at what Jesus says, picking it up in verse 9, because he describes what he will do for us as our good shepherd. The first thing we see in verses 9 through 10 is that our good shepherd fulfills us. Our good shepherd fulfills us. You hear a lot of talk these days about human flourishing Here is the only way. Jesus, who is the door, he is the only way toward human flourishing in any true sense. Look in verse 9. See what he says? I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That that phrase, in and out, it's covenant language, again, from the Old Testament. It's the assurance that Israel, when it's safe in the land, to to use another Old Testament term, when it has shalom, when it has peace, that Israel can go in and out of the land. There's a, a sense of safety there. This reminds us also of the words of Psalm 23, where we say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we know his presence, we know his care. This is what Jesus says, I'm the door. 
And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Look in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. You see, there's danger. To these predators, sheep are expendable. They exist only to be used, to be brutalized. But Jesus says, the end of verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Our good shepherd fulfills us. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, what does it mean to be fulfilled? Well, Jesus clearly has in mind his purposes. When Jesus talks about fulfillment, when he talks about life and life that is abundant, he's talking about a God-ordained life, a God-designed life, a God-oriented life, life that's received, life that's lived in abundance. It's genuine life as opposed to the temporal and superficial substitutes that you and I tend to fall for so often. I have this theory that we really only catch glimpses of what real life is really about because we are so broken and we live in such a rebellious world. There's fallenness all around us and we see glimpses of glory, but there's this glorious promise that one day Jesus will make all things new. What a day that will be. And then we will understand in its fullness what abundant life is really about. But here Jesus says, those who are mine, those who are saved, those who go in and out, unlike the thief who wants to destroy them, I want to give them life and life that is abundant. And it seems to me the reason that we fail to sense this abundant life is because we treat life like we're consumers instead of recognizing that our shepherd knows what we need. He has designed us. He created us. He ordained that he would save us. He knows precisely what we need. And fulfillment comes from him. And if you live a life, though you're a follower of Jesus, where you persistently and consistently feel unfulfilled, it could be that your sense and goal of fulfillment is in a completely misplaced priority. Where Jesus is eager to give you abundant life and for you to experience it here and now. He gives us all we need. He fulfills us. All we'd ever want, all we'd ever need, and yet, still we wander. We wander like sheep, don't we? It reminds me of King David. Remember King David? Who was also, by the way, ironically, he was a shepherd before he was king. But King David chose his own way. Yahweh, the God of Israel, offered him abundance, offered him life. He even acknowledged it. The Lord is my shepherd. And yet there was that terrible time in which David wandered and went his own way. And what do we experience? What do we experience when we know our good shepherd wants to fulfill us, but we choose to go our own way? Well, like David, we experience estrangement and guilt and isolation we can put ourselves in a place where perhaps we will experience attacks from the evil one, threats in this terrible re re rebel-driven world, and even to the place of deprivation and hardship when our shepherd says, don't wander away because he is eager and willing to fulfill us. Our good shepherd fulfills us. Our good shepherd also defends us. Look in verse 11 down through verse 13. 
Even though he has said in verse 9, I am the door, here he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Remember, the shepherd is the door. The door is the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, that is a singular phrase that John uses in his record of Jesus' ministry, and it has to do with a voluntary sacrificial death. We're going to come back to that. Look in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Our good shepherd defends us, unlike this hired hand. In fact, our good shepherd defends us to such an extent that if you go later on down in chapter 10, you see Jesus claim that anyone who is in his hand, nothing will ever pluck that one out of his hand. And that one is in the Father's hand, and no one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. That's the kind of security we have. We are defended. We are protected by our good shepherd. This is what he does. And did you notice earlier in the reading, earlier in the chapter, he is in front of the flock. He leads because he will be first exposed to danger. He will see the danger first. He is sensing the danger and protecting us from it as opposed to driving us like a rancher might in the rear. No, he is there experiencing the danger himself. Now listen very carefully. At the very least, what this implies and what the rest of the Bible teaches is a truth that is at the very same time very comforting, but can also be for us troubling. Because what this means is simply this, that nothing has ever happened to us that has not first passed through our good shepherd's hand. No harm, no hurt, dare I say it, no abuse has ever happened to us that hasn't passed through the knowledge and the will of our good shepherd. I have within me this internal defense attorney. And right then, when I think about this, he wants to stand up and say, I object. Because I know some of the things I've been through. They pale in comparison to some of your experiences. And yet, nothing less can be true. It's not as though Jesus is our good shepherd only when good things happen to us. It's not as though Jesus is our good shepherd, but he goes off duty when the terrible depravity of this world presses in upon us and violates us. He is our good shepherd from beginning to end, and he cares for us. Now, I can't answer every question that comes into your heart about that. I can't answer every question that comes into my heart about some of the things that we have been through. But I'm here to tell you that you have a good shepherd if you are in God's flock. And he is caring for you and he is protecting you. And whether it's through your own foolish decision of wandering away or if it's through the sinfulness of the people around you, even in your moment of your greatest loss and your greatest hurt, he is there and he will defend you and he will bring you through. There's great promise in that. Even though this is disquieting to us, even though it's troubling to us from time to time, it is ultimately a truth of comfort 
because you don't need a shepherd and you don't want a shepherd who is not capable of caring for his sheep. And that shepherd is surely not Jesus. Now, if you look back in verses 11 through 13, all of a sudden this hired hand shows up. Did you see that? It's in verse 12. The one who's a hired hand, not a shepherd, he doesn't own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he's out of there, right? Could I just stop for a moment and could you think through the, the players in this scenario, the, the, the actors in this drama, the, the roles that are played here? First of all, you have the thieves and the wolves and the false shepherds. These are the, these are the spiritual dangers that are around us. They might be literal, literal false shepherds or pastors or teachers that might abuse you. They might be, in a spiritual sense, the temptations that draw us away. Remember, we talked about those dangers, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Out, whatever is out to destroy your spiritual life, these are the thieves and the robbers and the wolves. And then you have the hireling, the, the Mr. Not-a-Shepherd, the one who is just there on duty. And then you have the good shepherd. Think about it this way. The thieves and the robbers, the wolves... Their philosophy of of life is summed up, what's yours is mine. What's yours is mine. The hireling, Mr. Not-a-Shepherd, his philosophy of life is summed up, what's mine is mine. Wolf's coming, I'm responsible for the sheep, but not my problem, I'm out of here. What's mine is mine. But what do we find the good shepherd says? What's the good shepherd's approach to life? What's the good shepherd's approach to your needs and to my needs? The good shepherd says, what's mine is yours. That's what we're going to see. Instead of what's yours is mine, like the the evil one who wants to rob and kill and destroy, instead of the, the hireling that just is out for himself and says, I'm out of here when danger comes, the good shepherd, here's what we're going to see it. Here's what we're going to see. He lays down his life for his sheep. What's mine is yours, he says. Our good shepherd fulfills us, defends us, and also our good shepherd knows us. Look at it in verse 14. In verse 14 we read, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Now, if I took the time this evening, some of you know this, if I took the time this evening, I could show you how often in the Bible, the idea of knowing someone in a level of intimacy is linked to the idea, if not a synonym for the idea of loving them. That if you know someone in an intimate sense, it's understood that you love them. And this is what God has done for us. His foreknowledge of us is his love for us. He set his favor on us. He loved us. Here, Jesus says that my sheep know me, and I know them, and the Father knows me in the same way, and I know the Father. And if you were to go later on in the book of John into chapter 15, there you find Jesus saying, the way the Father loves me is the way I love you. Now think about that for a moment. The way the Father, God the Father loves the infinite, eternal God the Son, Jesus says, that's the way I love you. That's your good shepherd's care for you. He knows you. He loves you. You are needy. You are helpless. You are wayward. All of this is known to the good shepherd. And watch this. It's all known to the good shepherd 
beforehand. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize you've never surprised the God of heaven? We sometimes use language. I understand why we use it. We sometimes use language as though we speak of God being disappointed in us. And yet disappointment, it seems to me, requires a sense of surprise. But God has never been surprised by you. In your best moments, God is not surprised. But in your worst moments, he knew all about that. He intimately knows you, and in knowing you, he loves you, and he has known you and loved you from eternity past. So yes, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us. This should never cause us to be lighthearted or casual or superficial about our disobedience. Our disobedience is significant, but here's the point. Our good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, he never has buyer's remorse. And some of us have felt that way. Some of us have felt that if God could get out of this deal, he won't. And we know we've, we've all been well taught enough that we can't lose our salvation, but it's as though God's stuck with this deal, but he would get out if he could. No, no, no. Because your shepherd knows you. And he has known you from the beginning. This is the depth of intimacy, the depth of love that he has for us. And there is this, in this safety and in this care and in this provision, this relationship, all of it, which is just astonishing. Let me encourage you this evening. There is a place here of rest. There is a place of rest in a troubled, dangerous, crazy chaotic world for the follower of Jesus if you understand the promises that Jesus asserts in John 10 you can rest in him there's still a battle there's still progress there's still sin to fight yes I understand all of that I don't deny any of it but I want to tell you in a sense of relationship it begins with your understanding of your good shepherd's care for you, the fact that he will fulfill you, the fact that he will defend you, the fact that he knows you, he knows you the end from the beginning, and you can rest in him. What a shepherd we have. Again, this good shepherd who says, what's mine is yours. I lay down my life, and that's the last thing I want to point out about the way this good shepherd cares for us. He doesn't just fulfill us and defend us and know us, but he saves us. He saves us. You see the end of verse 15? I lay down my life for the sheep. By the way, that little word for, it can sometimes be the most important word in all of your Bible reading. Pay attention to it. I lay down my life on behalf of my sheep, in the place of my sheep. I lay down my life. Now, a shepherd dying for sheep, in real life, it just doesn't happen. If it does happen, it's this accident and kind of odd tragedy. I mean, let's think about it. I mean, a man's life is worth more than sheep. And so if we heard a story of a, 
of one who literally, a shepherd who sacrificed his life to keep his sheep alive, we would wonder about that. that. That sounds like a tragedy for us. This is, surely it is hyperbole, but it's hyperbole that is true. Because this is what our good shepherd has done. Our great shepherd, the one who is, it says in scripture, he is the, the great shepherd over his sheep. He laid down his life. He died for the sake of his sheep. He was also not just the shepherd, he was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is our shepherd. And watch carefully. You don't want to think shallowly about this. This is not just some example. I mean, how foolish would it be for for a shepherd to cast himself off the side of a cliff to show sheep how much they ought to love one another? What good would that do the sheep? You recognize you didn't need an example. You needed a savior. You needed someone to take your place. And this is precisely what our shepherd, our good shepherd has done. We needed a substitute, not an example. And so what happens is this. For literal sheep, if their shepherd dies, that's a disaster. But for you and for me, in a spiritual sense, the fact that our shepherd has died for us, it is the source of forgiveness It is the source of hope. It is the source of life. Our good shepherd saves us. This is what Jesus says, you have and I have, if you are a follower of Jesus. We have a good shepherd who fulfills us and defends us and knows us and saves us. Now, can I ask you this question? What's this look like? I mean, nearly all of us, we can listen to this message and we can check the boxes. Fulfills us, check. Defends us, check. Knows us, check. Saves us, check. I've not told you anything drastically new, right? I mean, all of us recognize this. Some of you, perhaps by now, you're disappointed. And yet, we leave all of these truths far too often. We leave them in some kind of spiritual ether, some kind of of intellectual void, maybe a theological category where aren't we so glad that we have a good shepherd who fulfills us and who defends us and who knows us and who saves us, but what does that look like in life? How will that make a difference Friday morning? How will that make a difference next Tuesday afternoon? How will that make a difference at your job, how will that make a difference, mom, with your children? How will that make a difference in your fractured family where you have division? Where does it make any difference? And I want to leave you and emphasize and make a turn that perhaps you might not expect. But I want to tell you this evening, here's what it looks like. In real life, we experience this, all of this, in his flock. And what that means is, it means in the church. And when I say the church, I mean the local church. This is God's flock. He has put you in this flock. Here's how you experience your shepherd's care. There's a reason we call sometimes pastors under shepherds, because they are not the primary shepherd, yet they have the responsibility to serve and care for the flock. And it is in the flock. You remember 
Jesus told Peter, John chapter 21, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. You go to 1 Peter 5, and when Peter is writing to the church, he says there, shepherd the flock among you, speaking to the leaders there. Shepherd the flock among you, not the flock out in space somewhere, not the grand body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, the church. We're talking about the church in its literal physical expression, the local church. This is your flock. This is where you experience the care of your good shepherd. Acts chapter 20, 28, Paul's speaking to those Ephesian elders. Think about it. They were elders of a specific church. A church not drastically different from Grace Church of the Valley or whatever church you're a part of, wherever you may live, if you're a guest this evening. If you're in a church, then God the Holy Spirit would say the same thing to your leaders here as he says in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That flock, not all the body of Christ everywhere, not parachurch ministries, not all kinds of other endeavors that that maybe do in and of themselves might do fine and good things, but here is God's plan. Here is his flock. He fulfills us through the local church. Why? Because this is where we find real relationships. We have to find abundant life in our connection with other believers. So we find fulfillment and abundant life living in the local church. He defends us through the local church. Where will you be faithfully taught? Where will you be disciplined if you go off the rails? We are protected from error when we are a member of a faithful local church. He knows us and loves us through the church because here's the place where you are known and here's the place where you are accepted and here's the place where you belong. It's pretty easy to be involved in some other ministry where you never really have to get your hands dirty and where people never really have to know about your own stuff. But the truth is, church is where we do life together, and we need to love one another, and we forgive one another because we offend one another. He knows us through the local church, and our shepherds save sinners through the local church. Because I will tell you with absolute certainty, based on church history, but more than that, based on what the Word of God says, that the future for the gospel is not primarily in any other ministry than local churches. Our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, if they are exposed to the gospel in its purity from the word of God, it will be because when they are alive, they will be touched by and experience the reality of the good shepherd in local congregations, just like this one. Now, why do I grind on this truth so much? Because it's easy to find excuses not to be plugged in and faithful to a local church. It's easy to find excuses. We could take a survey tonight. We could compare stories on how have you been hurt by the local church. All of us have got stories. Some of our stories are worse than others. And quite frankly, some of them are tragic and shocking. But those are the exceptions You need a place where you're accepted as you are because you're the way you are. And that's the church of Jesus Christ. That's the flock of smelly sheep that Jesus calls us into. And he is there, our good shepherd. I like to say to people sometimes, John MacArthur won't preach your funeral. 
You know that, right? Maybe Scott, maybe John will preach Scott's funeral, but other than that, you need to be part of a local body where people know you, where people are going to come to your funeral, where people are going to care for your family when you're gone. This is the flock of God. And don't talk to me about Jesus as your good shepherd if you care nothing about his flock, because this is where you experience his shepherding care. Jesus, our good shepherd. Let me leave you with one final word. We've talked all about these dangers. We've talked about the care of the shepherd who meets all of these needs. But I'm here to tell you this evening that you need to beware of life's greatest danger. Life's greatest danger is to be lost without a shepherd. To be lost without a shepherd. The assumption of everything Jesus is saying is that he has his people and his people are the ones that can claim his fulfillment. His people are the ones that have the hope in his defense. His people are the ones that can be known by him. His people are the ones he saves. But if you're not his people, if you're not in his flock, if you've never, in a real and personal way, if you've never acknowledged your sin and guilt and put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ, then you have no basis or claim to be in his flock. You have no good shepherd. You are on your own. And all of those beasts, all of those dragons, all of those wolves, all of those shepherds, they're after you and you are vulnerable. But it's even worse than that because your greatest problem is not the dangers in this world. Your greatest problem is facing a holy God with your own guilt upon yourself. This is life's greatest danger. And this is the danger that Jesus was willing to lay down his life for. Don't miss out. Don't go through life without a shepherd. Don't go through life without a being a member of God's family, don't miss out on this incredible blessing. But even more than that, don't face the terror of facing God, of facing Jesus, his son, not as one of the, his flock, but as a guilty rebel against his name. That's life's greatest danger. We have a good shepherd who interestingly is called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, but he is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And one day, he will no longer be the shepherd, but he will be the judge. Make sure that you meet him as your shepherd and not your judge.